Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we thought that we'd begin today with a clip. People sometimes think that when you lose your sight, your other senses improve. There may be some truth in that after a while. My experience was that when I lost my sight, my other senses deteriorated. I couldn't hear people as well. And the reason for that, of course, is that when we're speaking, sighted people are speaking to each other, there's such a lot of facial movement, there's body movement, there's expression. Sighted people have eye contact. Sighted people are lip reading a lot of the time without realising it. When you lose your sight, you lose all that. Bodies don't exist, apart from elbows. Faces don't exist. Smiles don't exist. There's no eye contact. It's just a voice. I can't always remember whether I've talked to somebody face to face, as sighted people say, or on the telephone, because in either case, it's just a voice. Um, that means that when you lose your sight, you do plunge into a, a confusion. Um, the sensorium is coherent in the sense that your sight and sound and touch all, all work together. You haven't learned to see with your hands, so your body doesn't work. You haven't learned to walk without sight. Above all, you haven't learned to think without sight. Because for most sighted people, even their thinking is a visual process. Um, this footage was recorded with John back in December 2010. So, yeah, the best part of six and a half years ago now. Um, and we were producing a short film about snowfall and, and the effect of adverse weather conditions on blind and partially sighted people. And it led us to John's book, um, a book called Touching the Rock, An Experience of Blindness. Um, and this book contains a, a single passage on, on John's experience of snowfall, um, in which he describes how, how snow is sometimes considered the, the blind person's fog, dulling both the, the, the acoustics and the contours of the environment. Um, and it's just one entry in a book that ultimately spans three years, from 1983 to 1986. Now, John had become blind after a series of operations had led to detachment of the, of the retina, and he lost his uh, total loss of vision um, by June 1983. Um, and by this time, he was in his mid-40s. He was a professor teaching at the University of Birmingham, newly married, there to Marilyn, who's, who's pictured here. And the first few years, he, he really devoted himself to the practical challenges of how to navigate, how to cross the street, how to communicate with strangers. Um, but just as urgently, how to continue his work. Um, years of academic notes were, were suddenly inaccessible to him. How was he to lecture? How was he to teach? How was he to continue reading and writing? Um, and his solution was to begin using cassette recorders. Um, we wanted to play you a clip from a BBC documentary recorded in the early 1990s about John um, following the publication of, of his diaries. I had a lot of problems in learning how to handle my brain after I lost my sight. My brain hurt. I got bored, terribly bored. 
I set out deliberately to fight against that and to create an environment in which my brain could work. I make sure that there's a part of every day when I am plugged into my machines. Here we have today's notes on Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. When I am working, I'm reading, I'm studying, thinking, taking notes, writing, preparing lectures. I'm like somebody that's on a sort of an intellectual drip feed. A few sentences dropped into my brain will keep me happily ticking over for hours. So in this clip, you can see John's office shelves are lined with these black boxes, um, which must total several hundred um, audio cassettes in, in, in total. Um, and indeed, once he felt that John had some stability in his working life, once he'd mastered those practical challenges, John began using these cassettes to, to document his experience of blindness, um, and then ultimately began recording his, his audio diary. Um, Initially, these recordings were, were very much an examination of loss. Across each entry, he examined the implications of losing smiles, of losing eye contact, um, his precious visual memories, which he found were receding, the, the changing seasons, um, the transition from day to night. John felt that in these early days of blindness, he was not blind. He was a, a sighted person who could not see. Um, and he felt that his mind was being kind of starved of, of optic stimulation in the same way he described as, as his lungs would gasp for air. But over the course of three years, his diary came to, to document a, a really profound shift, um, a sort of sea change in his, in his state of consciousness um, and the discovery of what he referred to as a, as a world beyond sight. Um, in the foreword to, to John's book, it, it made reference to these audio recordings, and naturally, as filmmakers, we were, um, were curious to see if those original cassettes were still in existence. Um, and so after a period of getting to know John, we, we popped the question, and he eventually was kind enough to share with us this dusty box of, of C90 cassettes that had laid undisturbed on a shelf in his office for the best part of three decades. Um, and when we put the first of the, the, the tapes into a recorder, this is, um, this is the the sound that came out of it. Notes on blindness. Cassette one, track one. From June 1983 until the 22nd of September 1983. Track two, September the 22nd 1983 until the 24th of February 1984. Dreams. At what point after the loss of sight do dreams begin to lose visual quality, if at all? It is now early June of 1983, so it's more than two and a half years since I lost sight. And in that time, my dreams have continued to be fully pictorial. Indeed, dreams have become particularly delightful because of the vivid uh, impressions of sight and freedom which they conveyed. As this clip shows, not only was this an account that was set 30 years in the past, but it's one that describes a very internal journey. It describes a world in which dreams are more vivid than waking life. In fact, John describes blindness as the borderland between dream and memory, a world in which disembodied voices speak out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere. So instinctively, we felt that the use of talking heads or observational footage of John in the present day 
would have a distancing effect on an account so rooted in his experiences in 1983. We felt it would also place us firmly in an external, sighted world, in contrast to John's highly subjective account. We felt that there was something uncomfortable as well in the film interview that we saw at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the session. Part of what John's mourning is the loss of a shared world, leading to this feeling that he and Marilyn are drifting into different worlds of experience. So we began exploring an approach that would build on this sense of, of the dislocation of the senses. And we decided that constructing the piece through sound would be the starting point. The visuals we felt later down the line would be a creative interpretation of this audio structure. We thought about the idea of using actors on screen, though to be perfectly honest, at this stage, we didn't really have any firm ideas about quite how it would work. But we were excited by the challenge. So we began this process of structuring these 16 hours of, of diary recordings, which were to be the backbone of the film. At this stage, we focused in on several key passages, and we wanted to pause on one that first got our attention. So this is a diary entry from September 1983. On the experience of hearing rain falling. This evening, I came out the front door of the house, and it was raining. I stood for a few minutes, lost in the beauty of it. Rain brings out the contours of what's around you, in that it introduces a continuous blanket of differentiated sound, uninterrupted, which fills the whole of the audible environment. We would come to develop a, a short film out of this passage, partly as a way of experimenting and interrogating the material, and partly as a, an attempt to try and convey something of our, our ideas to, to bewildered funders and, and potential supporters. Um, and in 2013, we made this passage into a, a three-minute short film called Rainfall, uh, which was released online um, and at film festivals. And we've, we've got a little clip from that film as well. Rain brings out the contour what's around you, in that it introduces a continuous blanket of differentiated and specialised sound, uninterrupted, which fills the whole of the audible environment. If only there could be something equivalent to rain falling inside, then the whole of a room would take on shape and dimension. And so that's the scene which we then reshoot for the feature um, a couple of years later. Um, but off, off the back of um, rainfall, we got some attention at film festivals, and that ultimately uh, led us to a production company called Archer's Mark and the producers there, Jojo Ellison, Mike Brett, Steve Jameson, um, as well as Alex Osborne at 104 Films, who together had the experience and the infrastructure to produce what was um, fastly becoming a, quite an ambitious project and one which we recognised would um, need to be made on a comparatively modest budget. Um, and with a, with a grant from Creative England, together we then made a, another short film, a 12-minute short film, um, for the New York Times strand Opdux. Um, and this, this film took three diary entries, 
One about the recession of visual memory, uh, another about the intense panic inducing feelings of isolation that John occasionally experienced in blindness, um, and, and then closing with that rainfall chapter um, that we just played. Um, and this film premiered at Sundance in 2014, um, as well as on the New York Times online. Um, now, in, in terms of building support for the project, the, the, the sh this short film and the success of it was, was, was completely transformative. And uh, ultimately, it gave form to what had been a pretty difficult project to, to conceptualize. Um, but importantly, it, it also um, allowed us a way of of making contacts and building that kind of core creative team. Um, our production designer, Damien Craig, our cinematographer, Jerry Floyd, our supervising sound editor, Joachim Sundstrom, they all worked on these shorts. And we established these kind of key relationships early on, um, enabling us to sort of develop a, a certain shorthand that we would then carry forward to the production of the feature. Um, and of course, needless to say, that working with these more experienced um, heads of department helped uh, garner a bit of confidence in the project and um, provide a degree of reassurance to, uh, to commissioners and to funders, especially as it was James Mercer's first, uh, first feature. Um, so we thought we'd play another, another clip from the film, which we, um, which we workshopped as a short film and then reshot as a feature. And here's how it appeared in, in, in the final film. After nearly three years of blindness, I find that the pictures in the gallery of my mind have dimmed somewhat. People and places I know and love so well. Memories of my early life spent in Australia. So I found with great distress that I could no longer remember easily what my wife looked like or what my daughter Imogen looked like. I found that memories of photographs were more easily recaptured. case of my daughter Imogen, I have a wide range of visceral memories of her. Of Thomas, now nearly three, I have a few very vague impressions based upon the first six or nine months of his life before I lost sight altogether. And of Elizabeth, I have no visual memories at all and never have had. In total, it took about three years from the moment we first met John and Marilyn to going into production with the film. And using John's diary recordings as narration, as in the clip we've just seen, was the initial creative concept. But throughout this development period, we were visiting John and Marilyn in Birmingham every few months, um, trying to get some kind of perspective on the events of the diaries. And we traveled back through John's recordings with them, documenting our conversations on an audio recorder for later reference. And perhaps it's because of the informal atmosphere and the fact that we didn't have a film crew. We were very struck listening back by the conversational tone that these had, and also by the, by the poignancy of hearing John and Marilyn responding to these events um, from a distance of 30 years, and reprocessing and reinterpreting them in the present. 
So here's a moment from one of those conversations. You couldn't yeah. fully enter into it. That's, that is an extension of my, my feeling that he was disappearing away from me into another world. I did actually say, shall I, shall I scratch my eyes out? Shall I come with you into this world? You know, um, I, because I knew that no effort of imagination, even if I was prepared to make that, even if I walked around with the blindfold on, you know, which I never did, um, no effort of imagination would enable me to enter this world. And I think this idea of you going away into another world where I couldn't be was... That was, that was awful, that was. And this concept of different worlds of experience felt crucial. John had become blind in the early years of his and Marilyn's relationship, shortly after the birth of their first child together. So he became interested in the possibility of moving between these two time frames. And so these contemporary recordings with John and Marilyn became the second significant audio element. And the final strand came remarkably late in the development process, six months before we were due to begin shooting. We were up visiting John and Marilyn one day in Birmingham, sitting at their kitchen table amongst a spread of photo albums and um, letters that they'd pulled down from the shelves. Um, and Marilyn casually dismissed this box of cassettes and said, you wouldn't be interested in these, I guess, putting them away. And the box transpired to be about 20 hours of home recordings that the family had kept throughout this period, where they'd used tape recorders to document family life much like a sighted person might use home movies. So they'd recorded Christmases, birthdays, bedtime stories, baptisms. They'd recorded family holidays to Australia. They'd recorded audio letters that they'd sent um, back and forth amongst different family members. And so suddenly, all of the voices that previously had only been known to us through John and Marilyn's descriptions, the voices of their children, of John's elderly parents in Australia, and even his students and colleagues, were now suddenly bursting out of the tape recorder. And these effectively provided moments of actuality material. So here's a short montage of some of those recordings. The little drop of the father on my little beloved forehead. <coughs> the little drop of the sun on your forehead. Okay, tell me what time. How does it go, darling? <laughs> August 1984. I am speaking in Melbourne, Australia, with my mother. Yes. Now, let's see, mother. Now, amongst these recordings was also a box of cassettes which was marked Imogen, which would come to form an entire strand within the eventual film, and which would end up being really crucial to the, to the general tone of it. It featured hours of news items and weather reports by the seven-year-old Imogen as the self-styled presenter of Radio H. Radio H. Hello, and here's a brief summary of the news. Margaret Thatcher banned national health classes today in giving the extra money to obtain more nuclear missiles which are to be hopefully installed in June. And now here's the weather. <laughs> so, um... Experimenting with, with uh, approaches of, of kind of interweaving these various audio elements um, posed a, a question of how they would then be visually interpreted. Um, we set upon the idea, as James mentioned, of, of, of using actors, which, which would allow us to, to follow John on his internal journey, um, to access his dreams, his memories, his, his imaginative life. Um, but the, the challenge for us was, was how to connect the authentic voices of John and, and, and the family with the actors then playing them on screen. And that's where this idea of, of lip-syncing um, came in. And of course, we'd come across um, lip-syncing techniques before in, in theatre and film and, and, and television, such as this clip. 
Introduce yourselves, first of all. I'm Brian. And I'm Keith. We're brothers. Brothers, man, by blood, not by just the name. <laughs> when I stand on my brother's tour, by accident, he tries to hit me in the head on purpose. Like this. Oh! <laughs> I've been very lucky to have children. Well, so many. <laughs> Two husbands you've had, haven't you? Or three? Four children. How many husbands? Oh, that's not the point. Nobody oh. asked me how many husbands. Yes, you but will bring that up, which is very wrong. How the children to one no. husband? That's a subject that is private. <laughs> Very good. And another example that had, had greatly impressed us was uh, Claire Bernard's 2010 film, um, The Arbor, uh, about the playwright Andrea Dunbar. I called the play The Arbor because the street I lived on is called Bradfordton Arbor. It's always known as The Arbor. And a lot of these things actually happened on the street. They used to do like a pen thing in the middle. That was like full of glass. There'd be people having bonfires on the field and... They did make you feel welcome though. They were friendly. Friendly people, but... It's like my Uncle Tony. He used to be one of the ones that used to sit round the fire and have a drink and... The, the throw potatoes on it and stuff like that. It, it were all mad. Even I used to sit round fires with them when we were younger. The sense of dislocation produced by the lip syncing technique um, certainly resonated with this idea of disembodied voices that John talked about. Um, and we were keen to, to continue the, the destabilisation of the voice, collapsing the different time frames in upon one another, so that the, the active recollection of a memory was folded in upon the memory itself, extenuating the sense that these memories are, are never static, but are constantly being reinterpreted in the present. Um, to help illustrate this, we wanted to play a clip from the final film, um, which interweaves recordings that John made on, on Christmas Day in 1983 with John and Marilyn's contemporary reflections. Merry Christmas, Susan. Merry Christmas, Chris. What's that? My word. What is Tom? What is this? Lord. That particular Christmas is the worst. What is it? What is it? I think it's probably bubble bath. How the Christmas must have smelt you all the way from the North Pole. I was stuck. You know, I couldn't get up and leave. How can I walk out on Christmas Day? No. You know? But I couldn't stay either. Wait, How do I look in these? You look terrific. Did Father Christmas leave those? Are they comfy? Yeah. Are they warm? Yeah. Are they? What colour are they? They're awesome, nice, aren't they? They're a good fit. Uh, <coughs> Special winter slippers. Look at 
That was when you came up to me and said, you look dreadful. Why don't you go into the office? Just go to work. Just go. This scene also shows some of the, the visual approaches that we began to develop um, with our cinematographer, um, Jerry Floyd. For example, we didn't shoot the reverse angle on the children in this scene at all. It, it felt important that those, those voices of the children remained somehow disembodied. Throughout the film, when showing any of the supporting characters, we, we tried to frame out their eyes to suggest something of the, the loss of eye contact that John so mourned in blindness. Similarly, we didn't use wide shots that would visually establish uh, the sense of the space, shooting instead on longer lenses to disorientate or, or frustrate the viewer's sense of spatial geography. We'd use pockets of, of, of light, the strong drop-off into the shadows to, to suggest something of John's immediate sphere of awareness that was within reach of his hands or, or his cane. Now, from the moment we first met John and Marilyn, we'd realised that they were fantastic storytellers. And when we were editing recordings that we'd made with them, we started to notice they were prone to reenacting conversations. Um, so, for example, here's a clip of John describing a conversation that he'd had with his mother, which took place during their family visit to Australia. She sat next to me mm. and cuddled up quite close to me. Mm. And she said, I've got to touch you now, haven't I, Johnny? Because it's the only way that I can contact you now, isn't it? And I, I, I said, yes, mother, but that's all right. Mm. We began exploring ways that these remembered conversations could form the basis for dialogue scenes. So in the case of this clip, we were able to interweave John's recollection of that event um, with the voice of his mother that he'd recorded whilst on that same trip to Australia. So here's how the scene appears in the finished film. Strange thing, John, wasn't it? That uh, Dad came from England and married an Australian girl. And you were born in Australia and married yes. an English girl. <laughs> yes, it's just true. Yeah. He's a good father, then. I remember she sitting next to me, cuddling up quite close. John, she said, I have to come up close to you now because there's no other way we can get in contact, is there? I said, yes, Mother, but that's all right. Dear old Mother, what's it like for you? In other instances, we explored the possibility of removing the she-saids and I-saids altogether so that effectively we'd have one complete side of a dialogue, the reverse of which could be performed by an actor. And as soon as we recognised the potential of this, we actually began encouraging and even workshopping these kind of recordings with John and Marilyn. And we're interested in how this type of storytelling would play into this process of reliving and reprocessing. Um, and one of our favourites of these didn't actually make it into the finished film. This is a deleted scene in which John's ringing around the local libraries, desperately searching for audiobooks of academic texts so that he can continue his work. 1792. 
So this clip also shows something of the peculiar mechanics of, um, of the lip-syncing process. We put pips before every line so that Dan and Simone could be, could be cued in to hit their timings. We'd package up every scene and send it to Dan and Simone before the shoot so that they could study the rhythms and the cadences of, of John and Marilyn's speech. Um, and the other thing, listening back to this clip, that it brings to mind is just how game John and Marilyn themselves were for almost any idea that we'd throw at them. So, as well as ringing around local libraries, we'd ask John to describe his internal workings in navigating from his house to work. We asked him to play imaginary games of hide-and-seek around the house with the children, going out into the garden and reenacting a traumatic incident when he believed that his daughter had been seriously injured. Try to stretch out your fingers a little bit. It'll be fine, love. That was a frightening moment. The discovery that you're useless is not a nice discovery for any father to make. This process of, of reenacting is one of many forms of collaboration that developed with John and Marilyn over a number of years. And we were conscious throughout of the generosity with which they approached the whole process, which we realized wasn't always easy. John had said that this process was sometimes like reopening an old wound, which had long since healed. So by March 2015, three and a half years after we'd first met uh, John and Marilyn, we had the, we had the green, green light, the, the finance in place to, to make the film. Um, and by this point, we in effect had a, a kind of a 90-minute sound cut of the film, an audio edit complete with temporary music and temporary sound effects, which could be played whilst reading the corresponding screenplay. We embarked on uh, what transpired to be about a 40-day shoot, filming in a range of locations, including um, Birmingham University, where, where John had taught in the, in the 1980s. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of time spent in Wales, which, which doubled up as um, Australia for us. Um, a studio shoot just outside London in a, in a now defunct studio called Halifax Studio, which I think were the last um, film to shoot there, sadly. 
Um, the interiors of John and Marilyn's home were, were reconstructed in this, this, um, in this studio by Damien uh, Craig, our production designer. Um, and, he, and he built them on a, a kind of a raised platform so that they could be flooded on the, on the final day of the studio shoot for the interior rain scene. Um, and in the, in, the, in the spirit of this sort of madly ambitious, low-budget um, debut feature, um, we, we put as much of the budget on the screen as possible, which meant our wonderful crew and, and, and cast often soldiered on, sleeping in youth hostels and um, in local scout camps. And that's a, that's a spirit that very much continued into the edit. We, had, um, we finished on the, the 1st of October 2015, and we had just 18 days to try and get a cut in front of the Sundance selectors. Um, fortunately, with this audio edit of the film, which enabled Jules Quantrill, our, um, our heroic editor, to be assembling scenes as we went. Yeah, and then we moved into the, the sound mix, of course, and, and of course, having Dan and Simone lip-syncing on set meant, as that, that clip we showed you um, when he's ringing around those, those various libraries, um, that, that no location sound was, was, was worth recording, and, and we didn't record any. So the, the remaining sound elements um, in the film were, were constructed entirely in post by Joachim Sundstrom and his, and his team. And this included working with Foley artists who matched the movement of the actors, who in turn then had, had matched their movements to John and Marilyn's voices, this kind of curious uh, mirror process. Um, and of course, embedding John's original recordings within constructed sound environments meant emulating the necessary ambience and, and presence in those locations into which they had been restaged. And we'll play you a, another clip which we felt showcases some of this outstanding um, work that Joachim and his team did on the sound design. Now I find that there's been a strange kind of change in the state of my brain. It's as if now, being denied the stimulus of the outside world, the thing has turned in upon itself in order to find inner resources. Occasionally I go home in the evening and I feel as if my mind is almost blown with new ideas and new horizons. I find myself connecting more, remembering more, making more links in my mind between the various things I've read and learned all my life. I now feel clearer, more excited, more adventurous, more confident intellectually than I've ever felt in my life. There is something so totally purging about blindness that one either is destroyed or renewed. Your consciousness is evacuated. Your past memories, your interests, your perception of time. Place itself. The world itself. One must recreate one's life. 
In my case, fortunately, I had a central core around which to recreate it. That was my good fortune. Now, one thing that was essential to the release of the film was that the film was fully accessible to blind and partially sighted audiences. The most common way that blind audiences experience cinema is through an audio description track in which an external narrator describes the action on screen. And for this film, we worked with one of the UK's leading describers, Louise Fryer, along with the RNIB, to create two audio description tracks, one by Louise herself and another by the actor Stephen Mangan. But we also worked with our sound team with Joachim and Pear on a more experimental approach, which we called an enhanced soundtrack. And this was a version of the film which, rather than having an external audio describer, incorporated another five minutes of additional narration from John and Marilyn themselves, which was taken from John's audio diaries um, and also from the recordings that we'd made together, as well as additional music cues and sound design, um, which in theory worked as a, as a standalone audio piece. And this was a process that involved remixing large portions of the film, um, which we did with, with Joachim and with our mixer pair in a 5.1 studio with a screen turned off. Um, and all four versions of the film were made available in cinemas and on demand, um, and were also included in the DVD release. We worked with an app called Movie Reading, which meant audiences could access them with their smartphone. Um, and this was all made possible through the support of the BFI um, and through the work of Curzon Artificial Eye. Um, so here's how the different versions appeared on the BFI player. Here are some of the ways to experience notes on blindness in cinemas and at home if you're blind or partially sighted. Notes on blindness is available with four soundtrack options. Here's a scene from the standard version of the film with no extra description or sound effects. Here's the same scene with audio description by Louise Fryer. A bird's eye view of an arid, hilly landscape. White letters, Victoria, Australia. A man and a woman, both with white hair, make their way along a rocky bridge. Then Marilyn carrying Tom. The landscape blurs as John follows. And now, with audio description by the actor Stephen Mangan. An arid landscape. White letters. Victoria, Australia. A man and a woman, both with white hair, make their way along a rocky ridge. Then Marilyn, carrying a sleeping Tom. The landscape blurs as John follows. And here's the enhanced soundtrack version, which uses more narration from the lead characters, along with extra sound design, to tell the story. We went to Melbourne. I can remember 
a place halfway between Geelong and Melbourne, a rocky sort of outcrop. Walking around with the kids. In the middle of these ancient rock formations. Which give you the feel that they're, they're just waiting for something. So just wanted to finish up by talking a little bit about the virtual reality project. So the film premiered in, um, in January in 2016 in Sundance and then was released here in the UK in July, on July the 1st. The virtual reality piece was shown in, um, in cinemas and, and available for, for download on, on various platforms um, at the same time. It's something that we began developing uh, in around 2014, um, and it's very much led by our French co-producers at a company called Agat Ex Nilio, in particular a guy called Arnaud Collinard, um, and, and, and largely funded and, and driven by the interactive team at, at, at the broadcaster Arte France. Um, and this is actually Marilyn Hull herself uh, trying, the, trying the VR piece for the first time. So the piece is, is, is guided by narration from John's original audio diaries, much the same as the film. But he uses binaural audio, which, um, which mimics the experience of, of human hearing, tethered to, to um, animations which, which visualise the sound of the environment that, that John is describing. The, the first passage describes the, the experience of sitting in the park, listening to, to the footsteps of, of his children around him, appearing and disappearing with each step. Um, another one talks about weather, how the sound of the wind can volumise space, can, put, can bring the trees to life, and how thunder can put a roof over his head. Um, there's another chapter which uses the, the rainfall scene, which we showed earlier. Um, to give you a sense of, of, of how this uh, looks and, and sounds, we'll play you a, a short trailer for it. This is cassette one, track one. Notes on blindness. Sitting in the park with the children, I hear the footsteps of people walking past me, rustling of the newspaper, murmur of conversation, the myriad voices and sounds create a panorama of music and information. Where there is no activity, there's no sound, and then that part of the world dies. The earliest experience of panic took place in the middle of December. I left the house, but had only gone about 100 yards when I was aware of a growing feeling of doubt and uncertainty as if I was banging my head, my whole body, against the wall of blindness. As one goes deeper into blindness, the things which once one took for granted then tried desperately to compensate for, in the end, cease to matter. I think I'm beginning to understand what it's like to be blind.
So that, that final passage um, with, the, with the choral singers there is taken from one of the, the very last entries in, in, in John's uh, audio diary. In contrast to the, um, the entry on, 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 on visual dreams that we heard at the very start of this talk, um, he now begins to note how, how dreams are becoming um, increasingly auditory and tactile. Having, having mourned the, the loss of these precious visual memories of, of the faces of his loved ones, um, he describes how now increasingly he has to remind himself that people have faces at all. Um, his, his conception of, of people is now increasingly clustered around, around the auditory senses of their voice and their name. He has started now to, to think of himself very much as, a, as what he describes as a whole body seer. Um, very sadly, John passed away just a, a couple of weeks into us shooting um, in July 2015, which, of course, very much reframed the project. Um, throughout the development period, we'd been working so closely with him that, that we very much came to see it as a, as a collaboration. As, we certainly never anticipated that, that, that John wouldn't be here to share the film's release. Um, so whilst preparing this talk, we, we came across um, an audio clip uh, that, that John recorded for us back in 2014, and we thought it was a pretty good way to finish and give him the last word. I'm not sure whether there is really beauty in blindness or whether it's just the fragments of life which are restored to you when so much is lost. The world does return to you, somehow more precious because it's a remnant. But then you forget that it's a remnant and you start to enjoy those formerly scattered fragments in themselves. I suppose blindness lowers the threshold of your awareness so that you start to notice things that otherwise you wouldn't have noticed. The wind in the trees, the crunch of dry leaves on the front drive, human voices, sunshine on your face, and even smaller things, the smell of a new book, the beautiful smooth edge of a table, human hair, the first sip of red wine. Of course, I know that sighted people also enjoy these things, but perhaps there is a kind of an intensification that blindness brings to these experiences, which somehow makes them, in a way, more beautiful. I open the bathroom window early in the morning. There's a touch of frost on the windowsill. An owl hoots. In the distance, a morning train rushes by. I close the window. In the stillness, I know that life is beautiful.